Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets. And I'm Evie O'Hallam. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider how writing a book can be a call to social activism. The book we're talking about today is The Buses Are A-Comin', Memoir of a Freedom Writer by Charles Person with Richard Rooker. We were so honored to have the chance to talk to Charles about his experience as the youngest of the original Freedom Riders. In 1961, that first group of 13 men and women boarded two public buses in Washington, D.C., with the intention of traveling across the South to New Orleans. They were testing a recent Supreme Court decision that had ruled segregation unconstitutional in bus terminal waiting areas, restaurants, and restrooms nationwide. Charles was 18 at the time, and with him on that ride were some of the leaders of the civil rights movement, future Congressman John Lewis, CORE, or Congress of Racial Equality, Director James Farmer, Reverend Benjamin Elton Cox, writer and pacifist James Peck, and CORE Field Secretary Genevieve Hughes. Together, they rode from city to city and simply tried to do what they were legally entitled to do at each bus depot they stopped at. After sitting wherever they wished on the bus, the Black Freedom Riders would order food from white-only restaurants, use white-only restrooms, and sit in white-only waiting areas. And the white Freedom Riders would do the same in Black-designated spaces. Their stops in Virginia and North Carolina were uneventful, the Supreme Court decision held there. But in Rock Hill, South Carolina, John Lewis and two other riders were beaten badly. And in Anniston, Alabama, the bus that Charles was riding on was boarded by a mob of KKK thugs who beat two of the Freedom Riders nearly to death. The other bus was burned to a shell by a different mob, its riders only narrowly escaping certain death on board. And when Charles's group finally reached the depot in Birmingham, the violence grew even worse. The commissioner of public safety, Bull Connor, had given the Klan 15 minutes of free reign to do whatever they wanted before he brought his forces to the bus stations to stop them. It's a harrowing and important story, and there is so much more to tell. But first, a little bit more about Charles. He was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and attended Morehouse College. As a freshman, he participated in lunch counter sit-ins in Georgia, for which he received a 16-day jail sentence, including 10 days in solitary confinement. Undaunted, he joined the Freedom Riders that spring. After the ride, Charles joined the Marines and served 20 years, including nine months in Vietnam. Today, Charles lives in Atlanta, where he's a sought-after public speaker. We wanted to know what had led Charles to become an activist, and so we started by asking him about his childhood. His parents worked hard to maintain his innocence about everything from Santa Claus to the evils of racism. We asked Charles to tell us about an event that caused him to lose some of that innocence. It took place when he was 12 years old and working at a local bowling alley. 
One day, he went on a lunch break with some of the other Black employees to a nearby diner called the Majestic. Here's what happened next. Well, the day uh, at the Majestic was unique in a lot of ways because normally I would carry my lunch to work. But when we uh, arrived at the diner, it was a nice place. I knew the food looked good and smelled good. But after we got our meals, I wanted to sit down at one of the booths. And the older guy says, no, 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 you can't do that. And I couldn't understand why not. You know, we had paid our money and other patrons, they, they were eating theirs in there, you know, in the booths. So it was an awakening that there were things that black people couldn't do because in our own neighborhood, we had restaurants and we could sit at the booths and at the tables. And this was also when you learned that Santa Claus wasn't real too, right? <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, they couldn't believe that I, I, I was still believing in Santa Claus at age of 12. You know, it was a part of growing up. Santa, you know, in a black community in those days, that was something very, very special. Because normally during the year, you didn't get many gifts because the money was very scarce. So Christmas Day, parents went all out to try to provide some little measure of uh, enjoyment and also uh, some measure of surprise because in a lot of cases, we had our wish list. But what we uh, you know received and many times varied widely from what we had hoped to get. You know, it's remarkable that your parents were able to create a world where you continued to believe for so long. It's hard to know how to balance protecting your children with trying to prepare them for life's hardships. Do you have any thoughts about that for families today, given your experience? I, I think we need to protect our kids, and we also must encourage them and let them know that they can achieve anything. Now, my parents knew what segregation was. I wanted to be a farmer, and yet they never dissuaded me that I could not be a farmer. You know, they would encourage me that if I wanted to be an astronaut uh, or whatever, it didn't matter. They were going to encourage me and say, well, you can do it. Just prepare yourself mentally and academically for it. Do you think that there was a downside to you for them keeping you sheltered for so long? Or do you think that that worked out to your benefit? I think it was our benefit because of the community that I lived in. My birth home was about three blocks from the King birth home. And you can imagine the difference in those three blocks. The King family lived in a two-story house. You know, they had indoor plumbing and all those kinds of things. And yet we did not. So it was like between night and day between the communities, even though they were very, very close. Also, our street was unpaved. Mm-hmm. When you were 15 in your civics class, you had a gut-wrenching moment that really opened your eyes to how outsiders saw your neighborhood. Can you tell us about that moment and the impact it had on you? Civics was one of my favorite classes. And, you know, you you get your textbook and you, you're leafing through it. And I see a picture of my street. And it said this was a perfect example of a, a blighted area, an urban slum. And I know the kids knew where I live, but to see it there in, in black and white was just really gut-wrenching for me because, you know, now everybody knows that's where Charles lived. Mm -hmm. It was very gut-wrenching because you were, I didn't realize that it was a blighted area. You know, I mean, I realized there wasn't a lot of material things, but there was a certain amount of joy also that we experienced living together because I guess basically everyone was in the, in the community in the same economic situation. 
you know, men work for $40, $50 a week. And if the women work, they work for $5 a day. Yeah. Yeah. Your experience of the college admissions process, correct me if I'm wrong, you were accepted everywhere from MIT to Georgia Tech to Morehouse, and I think maybe even a, a few more on top of that. Would you tell us about that college application process and how it affected you? I had received a, a four-year scholarship to Tuskegee. I had scholarship offers from all over the country, but that program I wanted was nuclear engineering, and there were only a few universities that offered it because they needed a, a reactor, a nuclear reactor. I was accepted at uh, MIT, but uh, the tuition was extremely high because there were no scholarship money offered in the South for schools of that caliber. So I said, well, hey, Georgia Tech has just, re just received a reactor, and they had a nuclear program, so I applied there. They rejected me in a very unique way. They didn't out and out and say you weren't accepted because of your academics, but they had a re requirement that all incoming freshmen must be recommended by two members of the alumni, and you must be certified by the county as a bona fide resident. But getting the bona fide was no problem, but getting two members of the alumni to recommend me was an impossibility in those days, and that's the principal reason why I was not accepted. And those experiences affected your decision to become active in the civil rights movement, yes? Yes. My grandfather saw me, you know, complaining and moaning and groaning about not being accepted and being able to go where I wanted to go. And he just says to me, you know, are you going to sit there and complain or are you going to do something about it? I guess I did something about it, maybe a little more than he had wanted me to do, <laughs> but I did. Yeah. So speaking of which... In 1961, at age 18, you became the youngest of the original Freedom Riders. The most harrowing part of that journey came in Alabama. Would you please describe for us what happened to you and your fellow riders there? Well, it actually started when we got to the Georgia-Alabama border. And a man was getting off the bus. And he says to me, he says, you've had it good here in, in Georgia, but you're in Alabama now. But he was getting off the bus, so I wasn't worried. I said, you know, I... You know, he's just making, you know, idle uh, threats. But little did I know, in a couple of hours, I would see him again in Birmingham. But we get into Alabama proper. We get into the little town of Anderson. Now, this is Mother's Day, and the bus station was closed, which was very odd. There were people milling around outside the station, along with a policeman. So our bus driver, he gets off and he talks to the people. He gets back on the bus and he says, I understand the Greyhound bus has been set afire mm. and they're carrying the, the occupants to the hospital by the carloads. Mm. We realized that our friends were on that bus, but not being able to communicate, we didn't know how bad or if they were injured or, you know, or the extent of their injuries. So that really gave us a lot of concern. So bus driver, he gets back off. And he talks to the men and some more, and he gets back, and he says, until the blacks get to the back of the bus, he wasn't going to move the bus. Well, at that point, we refused to move, of course. Mm -hmm. Eight men get on the bus, and we later determined they were Klansmen, and uh, they proceeded to beat on us and force us towards the back of the bus. They were pushing, punching, and kicking. They got us near the middle of the bus. Two white Freedom Riders came to our aid. And that really made them angry to think that white men would come to the aid of these black students. Dr. Bergman, who was the oldest freedom rider, he was knocked to the floor of the bus and they began to stomp him in his chest. 
And had his wife not begged him, they probably would have killed him there on the bus. Mm. But James Peck was a bleeder. And James, when he was knocked to the floor of the bus, his blood coated the floor of the bus. So here you have them forcing the students to the back. We're stumbling over Dr. Bergman. We're slipping on James's blood. And eventually we got to the point where they just physically threw us to the back of the bus. And one eyewitness said they stacked us like pancakes. And they sat midway of the bus, and they taunted us all the way into Birmingham. They called us every conceivable name, not good. They also were really extremely hard on the white Freedom Riders before feeling that they were traitors and they were assisting us in doing something unlawful. Now, we were not, this was not an exercise in civil disobedience. This was an exercise in trying to, approved that the laws that had already been passed in our favor were not being complied with and not being allowing patrons to do what they were legally able to do. And what was your response as they were beating on you? Well, if you know the, the principles of nonviolence, there was no conversation. There was no blocking of punches or trying to protect yourself. You just took their best shot and hopefully you could maintain you didn't you get knocked down or, you know, and if you were knocked down, the only thing we were taught to do is to assume the fetal position to protect your vital organs. But other than that, that's the only protective measures we ever took. And we didn't strike back and we didn't try to reason with them logically or anything like that. And besides, as an 18 year old, I didn't feel that I could lecture an adult about the Supreme Court decisions and my right to as a paying customer that I should, you know, be able to allow to do everything that any other normal customer would do. What kind of injuries did you sustain and your fellow riders? Well, on the bus in Anderson, I just received punches. I guess, you know, I was in good shape. I was an athlete. So I just had basically bruises in. Uh, they didn't break any skin until I got to, to, to Birmingham. That's where my major injuries took place in, in Birmingham. We got to Birmingham, uh, James Peck, you know, he had already, he was beaten badly and he was still, you know, bleeding and so forth. But we were the testers, we designated testers and he wanted to continue. So I said, let's go. And we went in and boy, the entire wall was covered with men and they all came towards us. And at first they thought I had attacked James and James says, no, he's my friend. He shouldn't have said that because they really lit into him and mm. they knocked him down. That's the last I saw him. But they uh, surrounded me. It was a guy with a pipe who hit me in the, the top of my head, which caused most of my injuries. And also later in life, it caused some, a lot of problems. There's one picture that or one image that survived Birmingham. And it's a picture of me being beaten. And when the picture was taken, it startled them. And they looked up. They let me go. And they attacked the photographer. They destroyed his camera. And they thought they had destroyed all the film packs in the camera. But that one image did survive. But I just simply walked away. You know, I didn't cry out. I didn't cover up. And I just walked out to the street. And as luck would have it, a city bus came by and I got on it. And that was also a bus that was segregated, I assume. In Birmingham, yes. And when you walked onto that city bus, having been beaten and bruised, what did the city bus driver do? Well, he saw me and he saw I was bleeding. And I says, take me somewhere. And he took me about two blocks. And he says, if you go across the tracks, there'll be someone there to help you. 
And if you know anything about the rural South, black folks always lived across the tracks. The reason for that is in those days, trains burned coal and coal produces soot, which is a black powdery substance that seems to get on everything. Once I got in that neighborhood, I found a telephone booth. And fortunately, uh, I had Dr. Reverend Shuttlesworth's telephone number in my pocket rather than in my diary because my diary was in my coat and I lost my coat in a action there in the Birmingham terminal. One of the highlights of Charles's book for me was learning about Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, who was one of the heroes of the Freedom Rides. He was a minister in Birmingham. He was a co-founder of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And to hear Charles tell it, afraid of nothing. The man survived multiple assassination attempts, including having his house blown up with him still in it. It's it's unbelievable. (laughs) I know. Just walked away from the rubble. Um, Fred Shuttlesworth vowed to, quote, kill segregation or be killed by it. And he lived by those words. So after Charles got off the city bus and called him for help, Reverend Shuttlesworth sent deacons from his church to pick Charles up. They drove Charles to each of the three black doctors in Birmingham, one by one, and all of them refused to treat him for fear of retribution. Jim Peck's wounds were even more serious, and multiple white ambulances turned him away for the same reason, even though Peck was white. Reverend Shuttlesworth also sent carloads of deacons to Anniston to retrieve the riders whose bus had been burned, and then he gave everyone sanctuary back in Birmingham at his Bethel Baptist Church. Later that day, the police arrived to arrest the white freedom riders for violating segregation laws by entering a black church. But Shuttlesworth refused to turn them over. And that night, he preached to a full capacity congregation of community members and these bloodied Freedom Riders. So the next day, the Freedom Riders wanted to continue their ride. And Reverend Shuttlesworth spoke with Robert Kennedy, who was the U.S. Attorney General at the time, to arrange for bus drivers and for police protection to get the riders from Birmingham to Montgomery. And when the Alabama governor, John Patterson, refused to comply, Reverend Shuttlesworth and Kennedy arranged to fly them out of the city instead. Fred Shuttlesworth continued his activism with the Freedom Riders and then onwards for the rest of his life. Today, the Birmingham, Alabama airport is named for him. The case of the attack on the Freedom Riders had devastating lifelong consequences. Walter Bergman the oldest freedom writer, the one who was nearly stomped to death by the KKK on Charles's bus, suffered a stroke 10 days after the beating and was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. His wife, Patricia, attributed the stroke to the beating. Charles credits the photographer's flash for saving his life, but the head wound that he received caused debilitating side effects for nearly 30 years until the 1990s when he was able to have surgery to correct the damage. Later, when Charles served our country in Vietnam, he was exposed to Agent Orange and has had mobility issues ever since. The situation on the other Freedom Rider bus, the one that was burned to a shell in Anniston, Alabama, was equally barbaric and shattering. Here's how Charles described it. What we found out was when their bus arrived in Anniston, some men uh, laid down in front of the bus and other men in the bus punctured the tires. Eventually, they allowed the bus to leave, and they made a bus uh, travel at a very slow speed. They had pickup trucks that would come around and, you know, slow down. And anyway, they finally got out to Highway 202, and the tires went flat in front of the grocery store. The bus driver gets off and they locks the door. At some point, someone breaks the window, put in a firebomb, 
And of course, the Freedom Riders couldn't get out because a bus driver had locked the door. And as the fire was burning, the crowd was chanting, burn them alive, burn them alive. There was an explosion and they uh, it startled them and the bus door popped open and the Freedom Riders were able to come out. The men came out the door and several of them were hit with baseball bats. Now, the women climbed out the opposite side of the bus, the side opposite the door. It was three women uh, Freedom Riders on that bus. And they were able to uh, more or less uh, escape being beaten once they got off the bus. Mm-hmm. It was a, a terrible scene. Policeman was on the scene, and as he fired a couple of shots in the air, he said, okay, you've had your fun, and he stopped it. They were in bad shape, and uh, there was a little 12-year-old white girl named Janie Forsyth who saw the predicament of the Freedom Riders, and much of the dismay of all the whites around, she gave them water and comfort, which caused her a lot of problems later on because had she been older, we don't know what they would have done to her but because she was so young. She did have to leave Alabama, and she's been living in California now for several years. Mm-hmm. And just to be clear, what happened in the criminal justice system to the people who firebombed the buses and beat everyone and slit the tires and put you on the all on the brink of death? Well, we went through the shenanigans of having a trial, but in the end, they were all exonerated. Even though the FBI had identified them all, there was no way that uh, a white, all-white jury was going to convict a white man for beating up Freedom Riders, or as they call us, outside agitators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned in the book, you suggest demanding change through quiet but determined insistence. Well, I, I think what has to happen is that you have to move the demonstrations from the streets into the boardrooms and do the executive suites of the mayors and governors in the country. In other words, uh, you can march, but once you get people's attention, you have to negotiate. You have to let the people know why you're marching. You know, this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it. The demonstrators need to have direct lines to all the people in power, the people who make decisions, and the people who are demonstrating need to uh, give their number to the mayor and the governor. So if they want to call them, they should work together to exercise not only the First Amendment rights, but also to do it in a peaceful way because we all live in community. And if you remember anything about the Watts riots and all the other earlier riots in their 60s, it took years and years to rebuild those communities. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with Dr. King that the arc of the universe bends towards justice? Yes, yes. Eventually. It's it's slow. And sometimes, you know, I tell you, there are times when you doubt where is humanity. But I've learned that there are a lot of good people in this world and you can't be dissuaded by those who want to do harm or who want to deter you from doing normal things like normal people. Um, In 2013, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion in Shelby v. Holder, which was the decision that essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Roberts said, our country has changed and we no longer need the protections in the Voting Rights Act. What would you say to Justice Roberts, if you could, about that? The problem with that is we assume that people have learned And people are going to be fair. And that's not the case. That portion of the Voting Rights Act applied to those southern states where 
who were trying to change the, the voting uh, requirements of the voting laws in the various states without getting permission to do so. And as you can see now, throughout the country, they are enacting all kinds of laws to restrict or modify how voting is to be done. I think Justice Roberts was thinking that people have gotten better and they were going to play fair. But we learned that some people will never play fair. And if you give them the benefit of the doubt, they will screw you. Yeah. Are you still a believer in strict nonviolence or do you believe there are times when it's justified? No, nonviolence is the only way. If you take up arms and stuff, it gives them an excuse to do things to you. It also uh, justifies in their mind why they need to treat you differently. But when you're nonviolent, you develop allies. People understand your plight and they say they're trying to make change in a peaceful way. And that's what we try to do. And I think that's the most successful way because Dr. King proved it, Gandhi proved it, and we know it works. You use the metaphor of getting on the bus to represent activism. Each of us, and I'm paraphrasing you, so please tell me if I'm getting anything wrong, but each of us has opportunities to do something, as your father and grandfather said, to take action that could lead to change. You describe those opportunities as moments when a bus pulls up and we can choose to get on. And you've said that this book is your way of getting back on the bus, or at least one way of getting back on the bus. What are you hoping to do by getting on this particular bus? Well, first of all, I would hope that people whose names have not appeared in here's several books, that you would learn about them. We saved in the homes of parishioners in various churches and colleges that we stopped at each night. And they uh, gave us the best that they had. They didn't know us and we didn't know them, but yet everybody was safe. I wanted to identify those folks and the things that they did, but also to give young people law and people who are involved in social activism that realize that you can make change and you can do it nonviolently. Don't give up. Don't despair. Don't just sit there and complain about it. Do something about it. Was it hard to go back and recreate those days in such detail? It's difficult because some of it is so painful. And sometimes if I'm asked a question I'm not prepared for, I may break out in tears or I would just go silent because I'm telling a story. You hear me telling a story, but I'm living it. Mm. Some of the times uh, images are just so overwhelming that it's very hard to, to deal with. None of us ever received any, uh, psychological training after it was over. We just tried to go back and do live normal lives. But for many years, we didn't talk about it. Since people who read the book, they want to know about some of the other freedom writers, even relatives. And they said, they never told us this. We didn't know this. Mm. And it was 10 years before my wife found out about my activity. How do you bring it up in conversation? It's uh you know, it's not boasting or anything like that. It's not something we were ashamed of. It should have been in the history books, but it, it wasn't not to any degree. Yeah. There is so much that I learned from Charles's book and from our conversation with him that I never heard in school. I got a general outline of a civil rights timeline, but personal accounts like Charles's have so much more weight just so much more impact. 
I think they're critical to understanding what has actually happened in this country on issues that define who we are. And I think books like this and conversations like this are one critical component to our moving forward. I agree. And among so many other things, this is a story about what it takes to affect change. And I think we can all learn from that. After the first Freedom Rider, more than 450 people took part in more than 60 Freedom Rides across the South throughout that summer of 1961. There were bigger mobs, more beatings, scores of arrests. And then finally, in September, the Interstate Commerce Commission announced new policies that enforced desegregation and interstate travel. So the Freedom Riders had achieved their immediate goal, and they inspired countless people to activism and participation in subsequent civil rights campaigns. I so admire Charles's overall optimism and his focus on the goodness in people. And so I think that this positive note is a great place to end this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Charles on Twitter at C.A. Person. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.